hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And of course, uh, Pod Sequentialism grew out of the Pop Sequentialism catalog and traveling exhibitions of modern comic book art, which tributes not only pop art of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, but also illustration in general. And also of La Luz de Jesus Gallery and the Soap Plant Wacko Superstore, located in Los Feliz in Los Angeles, now celebrating. 31 years of gallery exhibition life and just about 46 years as a shop. One of the local Echo Park Los Feliz businesses It's kind of blossomed into a Los Angeles institution. And as usual, we are recording here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. Uh, my engineer is uh, Mr. Mason Booker. And uh, today what's a very interesting topic something that I've been actually trying to discuss in some way for almost the entirety of this podcast. And as we head into over 80 episodes at this point, I wanted to speak to someone who was an expert on the creative mindset and the psychology behind um, certain problems that you may have as a creative person. And magically, as I was looking at the Huffington Post the other day, I came across this really amazing article. And I had, it it was several interviews with people that I I know, I knew everybody actually that was interviewed for uh, this particular article. And it was written by Dr. Nikki Martinez. And uh, her specialty is in psychology. She's written several books. And I'm going to encourage everybody to go to amazon.com and search for her name. And it's Nikki, N-I-K-K-I, Martinez. And so without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Nikki Martinez to the program. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. And so what I thought was great when I was looking at the Huffington Post article is that and I'm not sure if you knew this going in, but because I, I know so many of them so well, it's a very interesting collection of people that you interviewed, all with really different perspectives and all at very different points in their career. So um, Liz McGrath, who we've shown for years at La Luz de Jesus, um, you know, you talk to my friend Bill Schaefer, who runs Hyena Art Gallery, uh, Spine Stealer, who Love has that. shown... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're both from Massachusetts, oddly. So there's there's that strange connection. But um, how did you come across these people? And what uh, what made sort of studying creative types an area of expertise for you? Like what, what was the, I guess, the jumping off point for you? Well, you know, I actually, um, during my bachelor's, obviously, I went on to get my doctorate, but I was a double major in art and psychology. So I've always been drawn to and fascinated by both. I collect art. I love art, especially you know, pop surrealism, the sort of like edgy, dark, cute. And um, I have more art than any human being put in their place. Um, but I, through actually looking for a Liz McGrath piece, came across Bill and just thought what he is doing and giving this voice to a lot of artists who would never typically be shown in the bigger galleries but who are so talented in their own right and have such a creative voice was so interesting to me and we've we've become friends and we talk very often and he introduced me to a lot of you know different people Liz Liz McGrath for example um, I had reached out to quite some time ago looking for a piece and she is so approachable so personable she was emailing me back and forth in a conversation um, she and she always is like that she just she's so humble she appreciates you know everything um same thing with lola um buying stealer is just a phenomenon in and of themselves and and is so humble and so sweet and so creative see now i'm amazed that you didn't come across me sooner (laughs) since we published two of liz's (laughs) books and uh we're her gallery of note and actually have several uh, had several liz mcgrath pieces for sale for a while 
Really? Yeah. And you know, and, and if you know, they're so rare to come by because she puts so much into these enormous, amazing pieces that it's not sort of the market is definitely not flooded with Lusmograph pieces. Right. You have to find them. Yeah. All um, of them in, in our instance all come from private collections. And so one of one of the, I guess, benefits of running the gallery that sort of started this movement is that we are generally the first place that people turn to when they're when they're going to resell if they if they hit into hard times or if they're shuffling out pieces in their collection. So we're we're kind of the, mm-hmm. the first point of contact generally. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the, the last one, um, Gus Fink, he is someone who it is amazing. Like when you look at styles, you know, I think I tend to think of Liz and Lola put so many hours and so much time and it's such a process for these really intricate, amazing pieces where spine, spine sealer is amazing where they can turn out actually these very detailed little pieces. They work with tweezers and toothpicks to make sculptures that are amazing in like a matter of no time. And Gus, the way he creates and thinks is almost so tangential. And so he just can change on a dime and create characters and images that like really evoke something in instantly and just the sheer volume of his creativity and work is mind-blowing to to even watch him do it and just sort of his way of thinking as he's developing something on the page is so interesting Mm. and so did you find as you started looking into this and because you came from a background where you we're studying art and we're studying psychology, that there was a sort of base mindset that most artists had and shared. And how did that, I guess, penetrate the the grander picture of most people at large? Like, what do you see as the greatest challenges that are specific to artists or perhaps more prevalent in the personalities of creative people than in others? Well, I think in creative people in general... Um, there is that level of anxiety over wanting a piece to be what you want it to be, wanting it to turn out as you would hope, wanting it to be well-received. You know, sometimes people do something for them just because they love the project that they're doing. But definitely you do, you do see a lot of that, but you also see, I think people have a very big stereotype about what the old left brain, right brain idea of like, if you're artistic, you're right brain. If you're mathematics and science, you're left brain. But really, right. if you think about it, um, an artist is pulling actually a lot of those left brain qualities when they're doing composition and balance and color theory and all of these things. They're actually, it's actually quite analytical to make something turn out beautiful and interesting and in flow well on the page and draw the, the viewer's eye to the right places. It's really more evenly using both of those sides than I think people realize. And I think a lot of the really successful artists, especially in the illustrative field, but I, I definitely not limited to it. And one thing that I've, I've noticed in the modern school of what was being called the zombie formalist, people who are, who are doing tributary or art history uh, theme pieces through abstract art is that they do have an understanding of psychology. And if they don't have an overt one, it appears in their color theory because color theory is developed out of psychology. And if you go back and look at some of the advertising psychology of the post-World War I period moving forward, and as you know, we look at TV shows like Mad Men where they're very much invested in the tropes of advertising as psychological need. Absolutely. And in color theory, people don't realize the actual emotional 
things that color evokes. For example, blue and green are very psychologically common colors. Um, you know, we, I, even though it's not as artistic, you know, I always tell patients to color their bedroom a blue or a green because it's like a calming piece in relaxation inducing color where colors like yellows and oranges and reds evoke something. They're energizing, you know, all of these things. And so you're right. There is to set that tone in something that someone's creating. They're thinking about those things when they're using them. They know what emotions they're invoking. They know what story they're looking to tell. And that's such an important piece of it. Now, where did you study? I studied um, at um, my bachelor's. I did it at a tiny little college um, uh, called St. Francis, where I played soccer, and that's why I went there. <laughs> and then I got my doctorate at um, the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. Yeah, I, I have now a picture in my head of a monk kicking a soccer ball as, as the <laughs> the school mascot, and that can't possibly be the case, but uh, it, it's it's a fun thing to think Probably about. Probably not far off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have never heard of it if they had not given me his color. <laughs> right. But it was a good education, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, as often boutique colleges are, and you get more attention from your professors, and you have that time to ask questions, and you don't feel so rushed through the program sometimes. Now, in taking those two tracks and having a, a psychology track and having an art track, did you notice when you were going to school that one helped the other? I really did. Um, you know, I did when I early on when I was still working on my doctorate, because that was you know, another seven years past my bachelor's, I was working doing um, therapeutic recreation as a recreation therapist. And mm -hmm. I did um, a lot of art therapy with the clients that I worked with. Um, I, I work to this day still with a lot of artistic types. Um, but I also found one, it helped me understand because there is so much actually in, in the color choices and the images chosen that tell you about the person. If people understand the symbolism and what different things mean, or they look deeper into it, but also even as a personal outlet for me, because the doctoral program is very stressful um, to be able to turn to that. You know, I, I say that when I do any sort of like artwork of my own, like I, it's a mental health break during the day where I'm like, okay, I'm dropping everything in for an hour. I'm just going to create something. <laughs> and then it's like a palette cleanser. Right. I can go back to doing what I need to do. Right. The opposite of what the professional artist has, where <laughs> I think that if they were to yeah. start with the work, as you say, that it, there's a certain amount of anxiety in just the, um, the process. And while it's, for professional artists and, and professional, the term professional as it relates to art is a difficult thing, and it's something I've discussed a lot on this podcast, that to me, in my, in my very rigid definition, um, a professional is anybody who is paid to create art, and that can be that you are an animator, it can be that you, you are a sign painter, but that if you are receiving the majority of compensation to, in order to afford to, to pay your bills through the arts, then you are a professional artist. And if you are on the other half of that split, if you're below 50% of your income is, is generated by the arts, then you are, you may still be a professional um, based on your standing in the community, but um, that you are going to tend a little bit towards it being a sidetrack or a, a secondary track. And I think that people who are able to balance a successful bill paying career with um, an art exhibiting career 
are absolutely professional, but they have maybe the best balance because not all of the weight of their ability to pay bills is measured by what they do for a living. You know, it's one of those great, great opening questions that that people have. If you want to start a really interesting conversation at a party, you can say, you know, what are three things that you're really good at that have nothing to do with how you look at what you do for a living? And sometimes people have a really quick response to that, and sometimes they really have to dig deep and look. And from a psychological point of view, you get a lot of insight into why they select these things. And you get an idea of how much most people actually base their own self-worth on what they do for a living. Oh, absolutely. And that's so funny that you actually just brought up that question about sort of what what are your strengths or what do you do or what the, what are you good at that is not, nothing to do with your look or your vocation. And I ask patients that all the time. And you're right that it's so tied into if if they really sort of like I said in my article it's sort of like doing art is like the air they breathe like they have to do it it is so tied into their self-worth and their self-image their identity is to do these things create these things be these things it's like they're giving a part of themselves to everyone and everything that they create so as far as some of the the problems that face people who and and, and I mean these are problems that they may be just inherent in the in the career in in the vocation but what are some of those problems that you think are easy to get over um in other words you know because you know we've addressed the anxiety and we've addressed you know how for a lot of people that that creative impulse starts to over time grow and become not just something that is the freedom from the other thing that they do like you mentioned you know a kind of therapeutic thing but becomes something that they they really have to do in a way that starts to interfere with what they might have thought their other plans were and i think that that causes a whole secondary trope of possible problems i mean problems is the wrong word maybe challenges to you know who who they view themselves as what they they think of as their core personality and because they develop these kind of other ancillary um, challenges. What are some of the easy ways that people can can find ways to overcome those anxieties and those frustrations? And do you think that even for someone who is a you know quote unquote professional artist, that there are certain exercises that are easily applicable to loosening up a little bit on the stress that comes with that choice? I do. I mean, obviously, in the broader sense, there's a lot of stress reduction and anxiety reduction techniques that people can use in really incorporating mindfulness and meditation and things like that into their lives is very important in reducing that stress, as well as it actually sort of gives the daydreamy side effect where people can be so mindful and tuned out that they actually get a lot of creative inspiration from doing it. But I think people need to... um, as I touched on in the article, people need to sometimes reevaluate their definition of what would be success, what yeah. would be contentment for yeah. me right now, what can I live on, and it may be for a while adjusting your standard of living, but we do adjust to our standard of living. And if you can trade off perhaps you know, a slightly higher-paying, mundane job for something that just feeds you as a person, it really seems like the trade-off would be worth it. Right. Balance. Balance is going to be probably an important part of, of any really successful in a grand sense in the way that I think most people picture success in that, that their ability to do what they want to do, to have a quality life. I think that that would, would tend to be something that would be an ingredient of that. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, Gus talked about it in his portion of the interview where he decided he just quit his job when he was a telemarketer and said, I, I can't do this. It, it was so just terrible to him, and he was not being fostered in the way that he needed to because he was in his art, and he, he knew that he was going to do whatever it took to be able to support himself as an artist. And he, you know, he'll, he'll talk about, you know, living on ramen and also, you know, in early yeah. days. And, you know, and that took, t- and it took time. It took, you know, <laughs> well, well, not to shortchange Gus's choice, but quitting being a telemarketer has got to be the easiest decision one can possibly <laughs> make as someone who used to be a bill collector for Sears Roebuck out of high school, where I think I would walk in on Monday with a bottle of Maalox and I'd have to find an alternative by <laughs> Thursday night. But yeah, the, um, I think that for a lot of people where, where what we call, you know, the, what most artists are most observers would think of as being successful artists. In other words, people whose work is selling at a certain price point and it appears that they are making money from their art form, that most of those people, before you hit the blue chip level, have jobs that are also very rooted in the arts. So you have painters who have gone back to teach and have gotten a certain amount of tenure or a professor position at a notable school or even just at a really great boutique school where they have now something paying their bills that energizes that thing that they love to do, which also gives credence to the thing that they do. So not only are they now creating art, but they're being recognized in the community as somebody who should be recognized for that art. And so as a professor at that school, it perhaps increases their cachet in their in the marketplace. And then there's other people who will have, like I say, people that work in animation where they're, they're constantly creating. We talked to um, a good friend of mine, Autumn Rain Turkel, a couple, uh, about a month ago, about he designs most of the film posters that you see out there and he couldn't say specifically which ones and and I'm not going to say because he's not supposed to but um, most of the stuff that you see he's had a hand in you know where there'll be an art director but he's he's working on it and he said that his day starts out with exercises drawing exercises to get those juices flowing so that he can get into doing however many drawings he needs to complete that day so that when he goes home it's not like he's burned himself out on that day job he's now even you know, more firebranded to be able to think about what he wants to produce for himself. And he can at least explore those ideas and get down an outline. And he has that kind of art school discipline. And I think that people who don't have the art school discipline find themselves flailing a little bit more. Like they haven't been given necessarily the easy toolbox. And so it might be harder to teach them how to look at their life and their art life as two things that can be managed. And I think that, and I I hope you'll speak to this, I know a lot of artists that think that because they're artists, they have to live in chaos. Absolutely. I think, you know, there is actually something to that artistic personality where they are typically a little more messy of both um, space and mind, meaning that they have a thousand things swimming around in there at one time, which is part of that creativity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, organization is not always a very easy task for them. They're not perhaps your best bookkeepers and business side of things, because Mm -hmm. I know that is not their strength and they need other people to help them. But you're right. It's sort of like they're, they're sort of living and surrounded by this chaos, but it's also part of what gives them so many amazing ideas and makes them so creative. But can also cost them relationships, financial security, um, 
careers and that type of stuff that um that that lack of balance can be a real a real bad thing oh absolutely and i think as with anything like for example when you started and when you do anything that you're starting off sort of on your own business you have to realize what you're jumping into and that there's a lot more factors of, of, you know, working for yourself, being a freelancer, doing all these things. And I think that people who are chaotic and aren't disorganized don't think about those things. And really quickly they learn what an issue they are and that they need to get that aspect of things under control or they're going to have a lot of problems, such as they need to know sort of what's going out and do they have enough coming in to cover everything they need to be able to track things, organize things, and really develop those systems as well and work on strengthening that part. It doesn't mean they don't possess the skills. They just aren't used to using them. And so it's getting in the habit of developing systems that work for them and and using them so that they can be all around successful. Perfect. And I think that's a great place to take our first break. And um, of course, I speak to advertisers and say you too can can, uh, reach this, this treasure demographic. And we'll be right back in about 60 seconds with Dr. Nikki Martinez. Hello and welcome back. This is Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy, and we are discussing with Dr. Nikki Martinez the mindset of the creative person, the psychology behind um, being an artist, and some of the challenges that face creative people. And so um, in this in the second half of the show, um, I'd like to get into what you see as the common pitfalls and the easy remedies uh, to different types of of creative fields and because there are so many different creative fields and as mm-hmm. I'm sure that you deal with people who are not just painters or sculptors but also musicians performers and and every possibility within that realm of creativity that each while having a general set of challenges also has specific challenges and are there things that you have noticed that maybe persist in one aspect of that more than another and how do those people relate? I know that a lot of artists that I know have at one time or another dated other artists. And I would say that it, the success ratio of artist to artist coupling is about the same success ratio as the oldest child to oldest child coupling <laughs> in that they don't necessarily <laughs> seem to have, you know, that, that yin yang fit. Like they don't have necessarily that, um, that shared on necessity versus nurturing balance that that each needs and that there may be too much ego in the room. Certainly there are couples that that are artistic and are able to do that. But um, have you noticed any types of things in in the people that you've been dealing with and uh, the people you've been helping that lead you to see a, a sort of fork in the road for different creative types? Well, I think it's interesting that you touched on this idea of creative types being involved with each other. Because when I come across those couples, you're right, when you talk about their chance of working out and these underlying issues, there's even more so than, you know, two people that come together as a couple from completely different backgrounds and they have their own mindsets and their own things. When two people are both involved in the creative arts, and especially if they are perhaps similar creative arts, they, it's it's human nature and it's very difficult, but they there can be, and it's a normal emotion, jealousy over one person starting to achieve a certain amount of success more than the other person. Competition, um, yeah. Wondering what, mm-hmm. and it's it's such a normal feeling, but it's so destructive to 
a relationship to be harboring those feelings and that can't not wiggle its way into sort of being dispersed into other areas of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And is that more of a challenge? I mean, clearly we see a lot of Hollywood uh, marriages start and, and stop. And I think that perhaps because the level of celebrity for other artistic fields isn't as high. It's not as noticeable. It's not like there are paparazzi necessarily hiding in Jeff Koons' bushes, um, although it might be more interesting than hiding in the bushes of uh, of um, Kanye West, that there's less attention, and so we don't necessarily see that there's that similar ratio, that there there's a lot of failed marriages and a lot of failed relationships uh, among painters. There's um, a, a high divorce rate among all creative uh, types, I believe, in fields. But when you look at people who have who have stayed together for long, long periods of time, in my experience, and, and, and this could be limited to just the the population control group that I have access to, is generally that there's one person who's very creative and there's another person who pays the bills. And not just in that they may have the better job until the other career gets more established, but that they are physically writing the checks and sending out you know, the, um, the payments and handling, probably buying the groceries and a lot of that other stuff that they seem to be the, there's like a very responsible person. And then there's the hardest, which is not to say that they're not responsible, but that without a really strong support system, there is a lot of added pressure because of the lack of available bill paying jobs in, in the arts. No, very true. And I think even, you know, if you want to go deeper then, because not necessarily a couple doesn't have to have a balance where because one person's the primary breadwinner, they're in charge of the bill. Sometimes a couple set up is that even though someone is bringing in more, they are willing to take care of all that because of it. But when you see, when we go back to that creative personality, sometimes that's part of the disorganization in class is that the person is doing all those things, those little things beyond that, the not only bringing in the money, but paying the bills, doing the grocery shopping, taking care of, you know, scheduling and organizing as their strength. And they have to take that on because they feel like if they don't, it won't get done. Right. Um, because there's, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That's, that's very common, very common in my experience. And so with the differences between like, say, what are the, the primary personality trait differences between, say, a painter and a sculptor, if there are any, and the differences between, say, a fine artist and a musician and a fine artist and an actor or an actor and a musician? Are there any things that you that you think are specific that are, are viewable from kind of a 30,000-foot view that are easy, easily applicable? Well, I think that um, when we look at, let's say, someone who's in a play or somebody who's in a band versus somebody who's sculpting a piece, painting a picture, doing something that's taking all that time. You know, some artists, you know, such as a musician, such as someone who's acting in a play or doing something, they have instant gratification or um, really acknowledgement for the work that they're doing because they're putting on a show, people are reacting in the moment in tandem where an artist may not, who is doing sculpture, painting, writing, may not have any response or reaction to something they've really belabored for a long time, for quite some time. Right. And so to them, they, you know, they could have an amazing piece for whatever reason, not sell for several years. And wonder why doesn't anybody love that piece? I love that piece. It, it meant a lot to me where someone who sings it as something immediately has the, you were amazing. That was a great show. You know? So I think 
it takes certain aspects. I mean, all of the creative arts take a very strong personality because even though there's a lot of fragileness of the ego by nature, because who wouldn't, you're really putting, you're literally putting like a part of yourself out there for people to judge Mm -hmm. and see and like and love. Um, But I think it's slightly harder for the people that have to endure and wait for opinions, personalities, for people to really connect with their work, to have that come around sometimes and and realize that what they did did evoke something and was worthwhile. And they sit more with why immediately didn't someone love that piece or react to it or why is it still not sold? Right. That's what was very interesting to me about that Bravo TV series work of art. As a gallerist, I, you know, when they announced the concept, I was just shaking my head because I've never in my life experienced a, a moment where an artist had to pre- produce an important work of art in 24 hours or 48 hours, that it's just not the nature of visual art, generally speaking. And I thought, you know, as a, as a sort of pivot on that, wouldn't it be interesting if painters and sculptors had tours like musicians? where they would be able to customize as they go from city to city or gig to gig based on the feedback from the previous night's performance, what the piece is going to look like in its next form, which would, of course, require working in a medium that has instant gratification. And certainly you see people that do live painting. And live painting is kind of seen as... I mean, in the fine art world, the live painting is, 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 is not taken seriously. And I, I know a lot of artists, especially muralists and graffiti artists who do a lot of live painting, and I'm not bagging on them at all. And I think it's a great way of getting your name out to a specific demographic. I'm not sure if that demographic buys art, but that it does give a different type of high because it's a, an immediate response. And because most people don't have access to seeing painters paint they only see the final product that there is a a shared emotion in being there while that work is being created so that there is a a very a very different quality and value to being able to do that and i can see why people who are really really good painters who can do enough prep that they can get out and finish a piece as part of an event why they would want to do that because it like you say it is is the opposite of that general experience for that one particular niche as a creative person whereas you look at someone in music like you said Brian Wilson while the Beach Boys were on tour performing his music he was slaving behind the scenes putting together this incredibly textured work that was growing and getting better that could be tested in certain markets so that by the time it was recorded as one piece it was you know as he characterized it teenage symphonies to god something worthy of the great compositions of antiquity no absolutely and i you know i think you actually just made me think of one of the benefits of a social media platform like instagram you're seeing a lot more now of artists who are posting those live videos of them working on a piece and I, I follow a ton of artists on Instagram and it's, you know, you get that notice that there's someone's doing a live something and you get to see any number of artists as they're creating pieces, you mm-hmm. know, in the series. And so they're able to get a little bit through the comments and the people who are watching his reaction, a little bit of that instant gratification of, you know, that people love the direction, that it's a, it's a beautiful piece, you know, something to keep them motivated and going and really maybe even to hear like I'm headed the right direction you know, people are responding to this, they like that. And I think that is a very interesting way and something that social media has provided them that they can get a little bit of that. 
And I think that it's also it's also uh, offers a demystification for the public and that they get to see how things are done. But I'll also say this, that I think that one very bad aspect of the social media platform for that feedback is that it is completely unvetted feedback that uh, Mm. the general public have opinions. Sometimes they're very destructive. Sometimes they're destructive by being positive. And that I've always told artists because I've, I've had people deliver shows and I look at them and I think, at what point did you think that pursuing this direction for what you do would be a good idea? And they would say, oh, well, you know, I showed it to my mother and my brother and they thought it was great. And my next question is, how many of your paintings has your mother and brother purchased? Because the, um, it's not a big enough control group for the market and it's not the right necessarily necessary demographic and that they're not patrons. That a lot, especially of of artists who are working in figurative narrative work, which is our focus at La Luz de Jesus, and not the focus at um, my my new kind of privately owned endeavor, uh, Gallery 30 South, where we get a little bit more abstract and a little bit more outside the box, that when working in cool. in that figure and in that narrative, that people are open to criticism because people feel like if they know it's supposed to look like something, it has to fit their mold of what something should look like. And so they either appreciate the style and can appreciate technique on layman's terms, or they can't, but that doesn't stop them from commenting. And that can still pivot an artist if they get enough negative feedback when they don't understand that that, that peer group wasn't the right peer group or it wasn't the right um, critical commentary. No, and that's a really good point because it's obviously not art critics and not the whole art community is a large and people who really know the fine details of what they're looking at and what's happening that are commenting. It's fans of the person that is doing it. And so typically they're going to love everything that they're creating. And so they're not getting that constructive criticism about, you know, potentially changing direction or it would be really great if this, you know, were a component or you were headed in this direction. So I think you're absolutely right that it's looking at who is responding to it and how value, you know, it's valuing the feedback, which feedback is valuable, which is not really adding to that final product being the absolute best thing that it can be. Right. And then the opposite of that, if, if someone is political or if it's racy and they just get a bunch of just unfettered hatred sent their way by people who are opposed um, whether it be theoretically or you know ethically to their own particular uh, school of thought, that that too can be it can be really damaging, you know, even though mm-hmm. it shouldn't be considered with the same level of importance. And so, if you if you were working with an artist who has you know put themselves out there and has just gotten hammered uh, via social media, what types of of tools do you give them to be able to kind of find their way back into a a level state of mental health after that? Well, I think part of it, because it is really, I mean, being an artist is to be vulnerable, you know, it's to put yourself out there. But I do think it's sort of looking at the realities, because when we look at sort of like thinking patterns and who truly in reality does and doesn't matter in our lives, whose opinions really hold water and whose don't and what is valid and what matters it's really being able to ask them to take a step back and look at that objectively and realize that some people as you said are just going to go on there as a point of doing it as we know many times a lot of people that go on and comment on things are only the people that are going to say something negative people that are going to say things positive aren't 
nearly as likely to comment on things right. as people who have something negative to say. I mean, that's across the board for anything, anywhere where anybody writes a blog or makes a comment about anything. So really stepping back and looking at which opinions hold value, is that really any indication of who I am as a person, as an artist, as what I'm creating? Does that really have a reflection on the quality of what I'm doing? Because I really happen to love this piece and I know where it's going and I know in my mind where it's going to end up and really them having to follow their instincts. They are the artists. They have their vision. If they really believe in something, they have to bring it to fruition despite what anyone else might say who isn't in their head and doesn't see their final vision of what they're doing. Right, right. You know, we all remember from uh, from the book and the movie of Howard Stern's Private Parts that when they started going over his audience demographics, people who enjoyed the show listened for 15 minutes and people who hated it listened for 45 <laughs> And, exactly. uh, <laughs> but I also think that, you know, at this point in time, and it's, it's, um, it's, it can be seen as fortunate or unfortunate, you know, that just as the, the best career you could have in Tombstone, Arizona in the 18, in the 1870s was the, um, the undertaker that in this uh, post-election cycle, America, that there's got to be a lot of work for a psychologist working with creative people. <laughs> Because yeah, after yeah. <laughs> after the last you know election, we just noticed it was like a psychic bomb went off. That you know we do an annual group show at, at La Luz de Jesus uh, that I generally look at between somewhere between ten and eighteen thousand submissions by you know wow. sometimes as many as five or six thousand artists and the submission numbers were down. You know the people that were usually sending in work just felt thunderstruck by the election that there was this idea that the that age of creativity that renaissance of freedom that had been symbolized in the last administration was now being completely disassembled and with every report coming out you know that we've seen and and without getting too political not that I, I mean honestly I think everybody that listens to this show knows where I stand but that it's just been a really grim time to have to kind of think about what's your motivation. You know, can you go on painting the stuff that you painted before now that we're in a different world? You know, as as we record this today, and um, the show will go up this app, you know, later on this afternoon, that you know we're we're looking at the precipice of a possible war with North Korea. That we're we're looking at um, you know a a untenable situation with respect to education and the environment and and things that I think that people who tend to be creative care about. Not that there aren't, you know, creative people that have a more conservative worldview, but I think even if you did have a conservative worldview, you'd be very concerned about the state of division. And so have you noticed there's been like a tremendous uptick in people that need your services? Absolutely. I have honestly, I mean, obviously I've lived through and work through many elections, I have never experienced anything like the reactions that people had after this election. I mean, people were, typically people are sad that their candidate didn't win. They're concerned about a number of issues, but people were devastated. People were in tears. People were really scared about the direction that a lot of things could, could change. You know, I, I myself with health issues, the issues that could happen to the Affordable Care Act. You know, I mean, 
you know, that's even one thing for people with mental health. They're yeah. scared that some, a lot of people who needed services were never able to get them before, and they finally were able to because of the Affordable Care Act. And now they're frightened, obviously, that that's going to be taken away from them again. And it's just been such an overall like, feeling of being overwhelmed, fear of the future, really not believing that this happened. And it, like I said, I've, I've never experienced this with an election before. This this emotional and evocative a response to what happened, who won, and what could potentially happen sort of to their world at large. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that a lot of attention has been given to in the last, I guess really the last 12 to 15 years where spree violence has become much more common. You know, as we go back and look at from Columbine forward, I mean, I mean, we can we can maybe set a a a particular attitude in the United States about certain issues, um, many related to things like gun control. And I'm not going to dive down that wormhole, but that <laughs> one of the discussions that has emerged recently has been about mental health, that a lot of the people who have been involved in you know, the perpetrators of mass killings have had so many warning signs. You know, it used to be, you know, and I'm, I'll be 46 years old this year. And when I was a kid, it was always, you know, somebody would just go haywire one day and you'd hear, oh, they were so quiet. They were such a nice person. Now what we're hearing is I reported five times that this guy was waving guns on his front lawn. You know, and mm-hmm. and there's this attention that has been given to the needs for proper mental health services to be available, that there's been an attention brought to the necessity to treat addiction as a mental health issue, that this concern about losing insurance affects a lot more people than I think most people are aware, that it's not just Absolutely. that life and death of, you know, I'm, I need a specific, um, you know, blood thinning medication that a, a company was just allowed to raise the price on to thousands and thousands of dollars as opposed to, you know, less than a hundred dollars that it's, it's beyond that. It's not just specialty. It's not just this, these exotic conditions that have become more expensive and, you know, the preexisting condition clause of, of, you know, not being able to get insurance. It's beyond that. It's that it's our last line of defense of, the fragility of, of the human spirit and that when people are so pummeled and have no ability to get help that it can result in a very violent outburst that does not just affect them, that it affects the community and the society at large. And that uh, in in creative fields, it's it's no different than it would be in any other occupation that, you know, the the mind is you know something that that can break and that without the right access to health and and care and in some cases just you know someone else to talk to as as we we get a little bit more insular with our our culture and and the internet and the nature of our cell phones that it's it's really important to take a look at those issues no absolutely and it's so interesting that you asked that and you had no way of knowing this but i developed a program with a partner called Keep Kids Safe, and we used to actually go into schools and we developed a program for early identification, prevention, and intervention of, you know, potential um, youth that were sort of showing some red flags and problem signs so that we could 
get in, get early, and get them the help and the services they need before it expanded to something beyond that and something catastrophic, as, as you mentioned. Right. And really educating the teachers and the administration and giving them that lifeline and support services and being able to have the tools and support when they are identifying these individuals so that hopefully, you know, things of that nature could be prevented. When we look at um, the tragedy that happened in Connecticut, um, that following year, there was actually a mass shooting every single week Yeah. following that, you know, so it, it is prevalent. It is, it is happening. It's something that um, we need to really look at where, are we missing these people? How are they falling through the loopholes? Why aren't they getting the help and support they need? Because it absolutely would prevent many of these tragedies. And that I think that's a really amazing place to, to leave this conversation. I want to thank you, Dr. Martinez, for joining us. And I also want to um, have you shout out some social media, um, bring up any of the causes that you would, you would like to um, have people get access to, you know, whether it's that, um, that school education program or any other endeavor you have. Just feel free to go ahead and shout out that, that social media. Thank you. Um, people can reach me on social media um, at Dr. Dr. Nikki Martinez, so D-R-N-I-K-K-I-M-I-R-T-I-N-E-Z, or also my website, super simple, www.drnikkimartinez.com, all one word. Um, They can definitely um, donate to um, safety programs to keep kids safe, to anyone um, with um, chronic health conditions and diseases to any of their websites, because as we know, those people are, um, a lot of them are on, as you mentioned, a lot of those sort of orphan drugs and things that are now going to be astronomical in cost for them to prepare and to be able to survive. So really any of those causes at large, um, I don't want to be selfish and divide it to one uh, specifically, but really if people are capable, every little bit helps. If you can donate $10 a month to one of those causes, you're a little bit and a bunch of little bits add up to a lot that can help people who probably are going to need more help in the very short future than they have before or go back to what they were needing when for a while they had this comfortable cushion. Well, I'm certainly glad that we have such a great advocate in you and especially in the creative field, something that this show is so very I mean, not just based around, but dependent upon. And um, again, just really I'm so happy that we're able to connect. I'm so glad that I could have you on the show. And um, as I would say again to everybody out there, go ahead, get on to Amazon and look at some of the books that uh, Dr. Martinez has written. There's a lot of great stuff out there. Uh, follow her on social media to see some of the things that she's involved with, because these things affect all of us as a creative community. And it's really easy to kind of rally a little bit of support around different aspects of the community at large to take care of every little niche but one at a time and so um, I hope that everybody's enjoyed this and that that will cease this episode of Pod Sequentialism and uh, we will talk to you again next week Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery 
And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.